Hello, my name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is The Sacred Reflections. The Sacred is normally a fortnightly podcast about our deepest values, those who shape our public conversations, and how we can all engage better across our very many differences. This mini-series on alternate weeks is different from our usual long-form interviews and a chance to talk a bit more topically about the current crisis, to revisit some former guests and speak to them about what this time is revealing about their own and our collective sacred values. In this episode, I spoke to Claire Fox. Claire is the director of the Academy of Ideas, previously known as the Institute of Ideas, and a writer, broadcaster and panellist for the BBC Radio 4 programme The Moral Maze. Since we spoke, she's also served as an MEP for the Brexit Party, a position which ended in January. Claire, hello. How are you doing? Hello. What does uh, what's lockdown meant for your life and your work? Well, it's fascinating because as we run public debates and discussions, we end up being busier than ever because we now have moved everything online. And so the Academy of Ideas seems to have more Zoom debates than it's ever had real life debates. And the positive aspect of that is that we can involve more people. So we get a more national spread of attendees and indeed an international spread of attendees. How wonderful is that? On the other hand, it's a little bit like going, it's a little bit like looking at art in real life versus looking at it in an online gallery. It really isn't the same. And so our, the spirit of community that you get from bringing people together face to face has been lost. And, you know, that is sad and hopefully temporary. But as it drags on, one worries about the capacity to ever have real life bustling debates and discussions where you hug each other and shake hands and chat in corridors and so on. Yeah. And have a disagreement and then go to the pub and make up afterwards and... Yeah. yeah, I think that's a very important point that you just made there. It's too easy to not pick up on body language, on in the sensitivities of the way that discussion happens is if you're having a robust argument, you need to be able to handle that differently. And in real life, that's much easier than something that can be quite brutal and short and not very human, I think. So I worry that people will be more easily offended and so on. But I, I miss that a lot. Yeah. I think we mentioned it on the first interview that when we were working on the Moral Maze, that going to the going to out for dinner afterwards was a really key thing of people continuing to be able to work together and that sense of we are more than just our positions. Um is yeah, it's hard to do. I am really missing human contact and when I have any spare bandwidth I want to think through a kind of theological and philosophical sense of embodiedness and what are our bodies and uh, how are they different from mind and the way we can transmit mind over uh, data signals in ways we can't transmit our bodies. Um, But that will have to wait. Um, I'm going to play you the clip of you answering my question when you first came on the podcast. You were one of our earliest guests. Thank you for taking that leap of faith. And uh, you can listen back to it. And then while you're listening, you can be having a think about what has it changed is something else sacred to you now or has this time um given you new clarity about this sacred value claire thank you so much for coming to talk to me today it's a pleasure now i'm going to start with our um 
central question of the podcast, which is about the things that we hold sacred. And by that, we mean uh, maybe a principle that we've tried to live by or something that we would uh defend emphatically if it was under threat. And if someone offered us money to give it up, we'd be a little bit offended by the fact that they even thought that that was a possibility. What is uh, the sacred or a sacred value for you? I think free thinking. Um, You could more broadly say freedom, but I I really mean autonomy and the the sort of demand that I'm allowed to think for myself and, and that everyone else is allowed to think for themselves. So it's not just for me. I think that's worth going to the wall for. Absolutely. So fairly uh, succinct and uh, rich in its concision. How has the experience of the coronavirus, the lockdown, the worldwide pandemic, how have you been thinking about freedom and the way it's playing out in your life and the lives of others? Well, of course, the one very visceral way that it's been affected is that we have been locked down. And if ever there was a time when autonomy has been removed, it's when you're told that you are confined to your home, you're told who you can see, who you can't see. And I appreciate, and I'm not an anti-lockdown fundamentalist, although I'm sceptical about it dragging on, um, but I think that we can have accepted as a collective act of altruism that it was a necessary um, request by the government that we should do this and that it didn't matter whether you said as an individual my freedom is compromised if you were doing it uh, voluntarily because you were reflecting on the dangers to other people that that would be fine but my problem is that I do think that you can lose the habit of autonomy you can forget what it means to be a free person and that sometimes there is an intellectual case made against anyone who is skeptical and made against freedom per se as a dangerous idea that I think would be an unhelpful um, outcome of this whole terrible tragedy in the first place. So, I, you know, I've noticed that those people who are more critical of the government or more critical of the lockdown or have got alternative views than those officially put forward by the government scientists are treated as you know, flat earthers and real prize, and also as having dangerous ideas that will lead to the death of others. And that is damaging, surely, for free thinking, because even though we've got a physical lockdown, we shouldn't have an intellectual lockdown. And so the attempts at silencing or disgracing or, or attacking those people who have different views, and in some instances, just downright bans. I mean, Facebook has just taken to removing content of scientists with a different view, doctors with a different view. This isn't, you know, far right, alt right thinkers where there's already controversy about whether social media companies should decide what or what is not published. But the fact that they're removing things that are not in line with traditional coronavirus explanations seems very dangerous. So I worry that free thinking is taking a bashing during this period. And when you kind of observe how we collectively are reacting um, although obviously that's we're always going to get into the territory of sweeping generalizations here but um the way this value of freedom which has certainly been one of one of those that i think uh, at least some voices would want to say is a kind of british value or a defining value or something that we balanced with other things hold dear do you see that 
freedom is becoming kind of more central, less central, more contentious. You you wrote in, in the essay about this um, possible, you know, that the, what feels like a tug of war between a safety narrative and a freedom narrative. And a point that I hadn't heard made before was about the way uh, women have always been told that freedom is dangerous and, um, you know, to, to that safety is the reason that we should give up some of our freedoms. Do, do, do you think there's something sinister about it or do you feel like it is a, um, sorry, this is a very poorly framed question, but I'd just love to hear you say more about that. Yeah, so I don't think it's sinister in the sense that I don't think it's a plot. There are people who are arguing, you know, this is the government accruing powers at our expense that they're putting safety uh, using safety just so that they can steal our freedoms so it's not sinister but in the course of trying to keep us safe freedoms are compromised and the problem about that being kept safe and being protected is that it is a loss of autonomy so it's different to say that you would consent to giving up some of your freedoms to protect people's health, the elderly, the vulnerable, and to deal with this pandemic. But when people start to intellectually make the argument that freedom is a threat to our safety, I do recall the issue around women, which was that women were kept safe and protected for their own safety. They were not allowed out unaccompanied without chaperones and so on and so forth. And women fought long and hard to overcome safetyism in order to be free. But it's the case of every authoritarian regime. They don't say we're an authoritarian regime and we'll tell you what to do because we're horrible. They say we know best what's in your interests. We're only doing this to look after you. It's a paternalistic pretense of we will take the hard decisions from you and you just do what you're told, but you'll be looked after, you'll be safe. Now, we say that to children. We've probably overset it to children. We've probably overprotected children, but that's a fair point. But we're not infants. We're not children. We're adults. And adult society has been treated in that way increasingly during this lockdown. So I think that that's my difficulty with it, that, you know, the fact that you have a police force that's then charged with policing this with, you know, threats of fines um, people phoning up the police and reporting on a neighbour who they've seen talk to somebody that they shouldn't be talking to or sitting on a park bench. It doesn't seem to me to allow much room for initiative or people taking their own decisions. And I, I think I made this point when we last spoke, but to make it again, you see, it only makes sense to me that you act in conscience if you choose to. I mean, if you are forced to be good, you're not being good. You know, you have to know that you could be bad. <laughs> you know, you have to have the freedom to make a terrible decision in order for the correct decision that you make to have any value. Because then you've struggled. You've thought about it. You've gone through a, you know, dark night of the soul. Now, I don't mean every time, you know, should I go to Tesco's twice in the week rather than what's going to be like a dark night of the soul. But I'd simply make the point that part of our, uh, being human is that we choose certain roads. We make, we own our mistakes. We have to take responsibility. We have consequences if we don't. So if you remove that choice, then what you get left with is just, um, was, you know, behaving according to a rule book. 
that doesn't allow you any room for reflection or conscience or to think or take a responsibility, I suppose. Setting off all kinds of threads in my mind about uh, the way we think about religion and Christianity, because I totally buy your argument morally and maybe even eternally in terms of the weight of our decisions. But the thing that I, the tension that I kind of wrestle with and I don't come down hard on either way is that all of those arguments make complete sense to me when it's only our individual harm for which we're responsible. And I think maybe the central moral question is, uh, if your free choices cause harm, how much can you be forced to do good? You know, and how much should you be? What is the threshold? And the fact that I'm asking those things when I have quite high levels of scepticism about utilitarianism as a kind of blanket approach in the public sphere and I would want to th be thinking about character and formation is interesting to me so uh as always Claire you're making me think deeply um let's talk a bit about the way we engage across our differences and when we spoke last time actually it was before you'd become um uh Brexit party MEP and now that uh, season of your life has finished and lots of my guests have talked to me how about how they, they almost miss scrapping about Brexit that it is astonishing really how th these what seemed very deep divisions and very deep identities are at very least I'm going to say furloughed uh, very least paused or deprioritized do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing do you worry about it and what might it mean for our kind of divisiveness going forward? Have we just swapped one set of divisions for another? Or is there the possible moment of a bit more unity? I think it's perhaps given us pause for thought about the way those divisions played out. So the, by which I mean, Brexit will still be important. In fact, it's just arriving back in the political agenda because of the time that we're at in relation to the negotiations and you can feel a certain relief that people think oh i know i now know where i am you know i was on that side in the brexit debate and I, you know it's kind of we'd got used to that division in some ways um and tribalism is comforting things, yeah it, it's well you know i kind of recognize my tribe because one of the things that's happened in relation to our responses to coronaviruses i don't think that you can say oh you know all the leavers think this or all the remainers think that it's created new divisions about what your attitude is to lockdown and what your attitude is to you know the particular epidemiologist or the particular forecaster whoever your favored person is that you go with and so what you find is that you're in unity with people who you were having quite deep and vicious arguments with about Brexit and similarly people that you were comrades in arms with on the Brexit question suddenly um, become you know absolutely vociferous pro-lockdown fundamentalists and so you realize that the so what I think that allows you to do is to think so these are political divisions they're political divisions and therefore those political divisions don't forever mean that you agree on everything and therefore seeing those political divisions as personality traits is inappropriate and the way then that people took personally their views on brexit to mean something couldn't be true because actually they were a political position and therefore one reflects that it's not that it's not that easy to just cast forever people into a particular hue and say, you must be this because you think this, because actually that's not true at all. 
Um, so that's been interesting. I think, however, that um, there's a broader problem that I think we, we probably reflected on the last time I spoke. I went to a funeral yesterday, um, which was a very odd experience. Somebody who died of COVID, uh, Deepak Lal, a great uh, historian and um, economist. And it was a COVID funeral, so there was only 10 people there. It was a beautiful service, but it was so difficult not being able to hug his wife, Barbara, and his daughter. And I cried a lot and it was it was very sad. And the reason I mention it is because Deepak Lal was a free trade, you know, guru who had, he and I would appear to have nothing in common. And when we first met, at a conference, we argued all the way through and people were warning him and saying, oh, she's a lefty, you know, and he was very sceptical. This is 15 years ago. And at the end of that conference, Deepak said to me, you know, you and I are going to be friends for a very long time. And um, we disagree in a way that makes me realise that we both believe in free thinking. And I thought that that was, and he practically adopted me and I have been friends with him ever since. And he's been something of a mentor to me. So he, at his funeral of 10, had people from across the political spectrum. And what everybody said about him was that even though he was the grand man of free trade economics and um, a Hayekian to the core, that he respected people who stuck by their principles and argued and didn't take things personally. And so we were an eclectic political group at that funeral. And it was a reminder when you say about the sacred, that that is what makes a great thinker, someone who's open-minded, doesn't close their minds, doesn't choose a, a, a friendship circle or a, an intellectual scholarly circle of only like-minded people. He's always open to learning. And although he was 80, he was a spring chicken and taken far too quickly. Um, he, in the last time I met him for lunch, it was a joyous occasion where we argued and agreed and fought and then, you know, said, finished each of the sentences. We, I think, have lost that as a society. It is not fashionable to be like that. People imagine that in order to deal with um, political differences and tribes is to be a centrist. But actually, that can just be dull and mean that you don't hold true to anything. Whereas I believe that you can have passionately different views to someone and still have something in common with them. So that's very important to me. Claire Fox, thank you so much for talking to me on The Sacred Reflections. Thank you. I have loved speaking to such a range of people for this series, really getting different perspectives on what's going on. And I'm left lingering on this idea of freedom. How important is freedom? What's the difference between freedom from and freedom to? In the early days of the pandemic, there was a lot of talk about saving lives versus saving the economy and some unhelpful controversialists making exactly that case. But the more time goes on, the more I think it's a lot more complicated than that. I spoke to a friend recently who I expected to be very pro-lockdown, but it turns out is very sceptical because of the issue of intergenerational injustice, the wrecking of an economic future for a generation who don't yet have a voice. 
as Claire was saying, our previous political and tribal identities don't fit neatly into these new emerging um, positions or views or perspectives. As always, I am pondering and listening and seeking um, probably a cack-handed way to understand. Thank you for listening in. Thank you for pondering with me throughout this time, wherever you're listening from. I am locked in my very untidy now work hole with a mic day after day with my extroversion slowly sending me insane. Uh, but it has been a real privilege to listen and reflect and try and think deeply to respond to these times, not just react to them. Here is a voice memo from a listener. Something I've realised during lockdown that I hold sacred that surprised me is um, my own space. I rent, so I've never really um, cared too much what my flat or my garden looked like. Whereas actually, um, now I really care. I found myself um, going to the garden centre more, more than one occasion, um, getting flowers to make my garden pretty. I've done things like clean the walls. Um, I've um, cleaned the top of my mattress. I've done some really strange cleaning projects in the house. And part of that is probably boredom. But also, and you know, I think I really care about my own space and the walls I'm staring at on a daily basis and it makes me happy I've realized how much happiness I get from um making my home feel you know like a haven and I guess that's really important during this time um so yeah my, my garden is now full of flowers and um, which I'm hoping my dogs don't dig up um and I'm yeah, investing a lot more time in cleaning every almost every day I'm doing some kind of task for the house, um, which is just nice. I think it gives me a real sense of achievement. And I, um, I just, I guess it's probably quite good for my mental health too. Thank you for listening to The Sacred Reflections. Big thanks go to Abby Allison, Lizzie Stanley and Emily Down for all your help with this series. Sacred is a project of the Think Tank Theos, and you can find out more about our work at theosthinktank.co.uk.